Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China through our daily email newsletter, our website, our app, and our growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from the bucolic splendor of his sprawling woodland estate in Nashville, Tennessee, is gentleman Jeremy Goldcorn, a man, and I, I swear to God, I'm not kidding this time, who was named Beijing's most eligible bachelor uh, in the year 2000. <laughs> Look at him now, and it's hard to imagine. Uh, no, I wasn't. I was one of several reprobates put on the, the cover of some expat rag. Okay, well, anyway, I hope Faye appreciates how lucky she is. Yeah, you tell her, please. I will. I will. I will remind her daily. Anyway, today on the program, we are delighted to welcome Adam Tews, professor of history at Columbia University. Adam was trained as a Germanist, but his writings really span the globe. Uh, he's the author of several books and, and a prolific writer whose essays of late appear mainly in the London Review of Books. He's one of the few people I regularly read who's able to discuss with historical context and really keen insight, but also with a lot of force and really a compelling sense of urgency, the nexus of, of geopolitics and the global economy. His book, Crashed, is the single volume I recommend most often for people who want to really wrap their heads around the causes and consequences of the global financial crisis. Not surprisingly, a number of his recent articles have dealt extensively with China and the contest that is now hotting up between China and the United States. I quoted at length a passage from his most recent London Review of Books piece in the newsletter just last week about how to think about the debate on the so-called new Cold War between the US and China. We'll get to that later in the show. But in the meantime, I am thrilled that Adam is able to join us today to talk about that and many other things. Adam Tews, welcome to Seneca. Thank you for having me on the show. Adam, yes, great to finally have you on. So I don't think it's premature or even really overly dramatic to talk about this moment as one of, of enormous historical importance. I think we all recognize that you know, there's little doubt in my mind anyway that historians only a few decades hence are going to point to 2020 to the COVID-19 pandemic, to the economic crisis that it brought on, to the rupture with China as all really pivotal. I mean, it, it, it feels like the confluence of currents already underway, accelerated by the pandemic, of course, is hurtling us into a really uncertain future. Adam, can you identify what you believe to be sort of the major macro currents that make this moment and, and what their convergence has now produced? Well, I think I think you're right to have singled out the ones th- th- that you have. I mean, the we were anticipating tension this year, um, the tension between China and the United States. After all, is not a new phenomenon. It goes back many years. It goes back before the Trump administration. 
I think most people would argue that it goes back to the early days of the first Obama term. But there was no stat at all that it, the tension had was 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 rising steadily. Many people were concerned about the state of the global economy as we began the year. The levels of debt accumulated all over the world, notably in China, have been a matter of concern for for many years. And we know how close, well, it seems we got to a really very, very significant crisis in 2015, 2016 in China. Mm. There was also mounting concern about climate politics. So Anthropocene-type issues, the the feedback loops from our, our massive collective mobilization of natural resources were already beginning to worry people very seriously and all sorts of people were beginning to sketch scenarios of interactions between climate shocks we imagined and financial markets that also has a geopolitical dimension because the united states is not part any longer really of the global climate politics and so a lot of people were focused on the upcoming climate talks of this year that were scheduled for london or no for, for glasgow in, in november cop 26 and and mm. as a european i was thinking lots of people were thinking about potential european china axis on on climate politics that would shape the world so 2020 was already set up if you like and this isn't even to mention the fact that it's an american presidential election year so you know, that was on the agenda but then COVID has really just twisted all of this in a way which is quite spectacular in a way I don't think really had everyone had only quite understood the potential for this to happen. Um, the shock itself, the comprehensive global reaction, the truly jaw-dropping economic consequences of that, you know, the numbers that we're going to get out of the United States tomorrow suggest, you know, a 35% fall in GDP in the United States annualised. So that's actually not what happened. But if you had taken the rate of collapse in the first part of this year and annualized that you would have ended up with that number with in Europe it's similar 20% fall there right. combined with then the lurching escalation on both sides both as it were Beijing's decision to push towards if you like a resolution if you like of the Hong Kong question in terms of the security law there um, and on the other hand the increasingly ideological reading of the tension between the United States and China on the part of the American administration all of this yes it does it does add up to a truly remarkable conjuncture and a lot hinges i think on the way we tell the story on what happens in the election um you know there are two possible ways that could go or possibly three um yeah, right. and uh, that in and of itself the fact that we're not certain that it'll be decided or that we're anxious about other possibilities marks marks another dimension and of course when we talk about the crisis and this is you know it's sort of you you begin to run out of mental space we also have to figure that in june we were confronted with a situation in which you know legitimate public protest over the extraordinarily illegitimate killing of a black fellow citizen had triggered you know open discussion on the part of the american authorities about the deployment of america's own soldiers to the streets of the capital i mean it's you know and the, we now think in retrospect that it was the intervention of the senior top brass in the american military that stopped that from happening i mean this is like, you know and that was june so so we we it really has been an amazing amazing year uh, so about a year ago, Adam, uh, you wrote and did some speaking about American power and the difference between mm -hmm. American power and American political authority, yeah. uh, arguing that while we may be at, uh, at the end of Pax Americana, and while mm -hmm. American political authority has certainly waned under Trump, American power was not much diminished. Uh, a year on, after COVID-19 and this extraordinary time, uh, has your assessment changed? Uh, not fundamentally, I think, but the, the, 
schizophrenia, the polarity that I was pointing to, thinking about these issues last year, has become, if anything, even more extreme. I think that's the, the fundamental right. point to make, right? The, the, to just highlight two elements, the Fed played an absolutely pivotal role in March in the stabilization of global financial markets in a reprise on an even grander scale, really, of the dynamic that we saw in 2008, where quite suddenly, in a vertiginous way, we, were, we, we, we woke up to the fact that the entire global financial system depends essentially on an abundant supply of dollars. And the only agency that can secure that is America's National Central Bank. And this was reaffirmed quite dramatically in, in March. Uh, and on the other hand, we have just the spiraling collapse of the coherence of American policymaking and just the undignified, shambolic, I mean, barely describable kind of display of, of irresponsibility and incoherence and, and just irrationality on the part of the Trump administration. And then, as it were, spiraling out from that, the incoherence of the GOP in, in both at its national and regional level, which has been a feature of American politics. This isn't a recent thing. This isn't, shouldn't be a surprise. But the scale that it's reached and the way in which this crisis has truly exposed, if you like, the weakest point in the soft underbelly of the American state, which is its healthcare system, mm, yeah. um, is, is, is truly dramatic. Um, and I don't see how you, anyone, can walk away from this moment and look at the mortality figures in China, even allowing for the fact that they may be on the rosy side uh, and compare those with the United States and not draw conclusions about the what political State scientists... Capacity. Yeah, what the, and what the political scientists call output legitimacy, you know. Sure, right. Um, it makes a huge difference whether your government can actually, in a credible way, promise to keep you safe. Keep you alive. Keep you alive. And that... And, that isn't everything. That's not the be all and end all. I mean, that's not. You know, it's obviously not. And the, the the clearly the methods that were used to stabilize the situation in China in February were themselves a historical break. Right, that cell system, the incredible mobilization of the party at the local level. That's not the everyday reality of China in recent years. But it's it exploded with an incredible force and effectiveness. So yes, uh, I do think I do think that contrast has become even more stark. Adam, to just uh, go back a little bit, you, you, you talked about the, the Federal Reserve and a consistent theme in some of your recent writings has been the competence of Amer America's uh, economic technocrats, especially the Fed, which you've given high marks to in its ability to respond to crises. Um, you might say that the Fed has been successful in spite of the American political leadership. Does that sound like what you have been trying to say? Yes, broadly speaking, that that reached you know a, a historic uh, point of kind of revelation last year. Because I mean, if you start from a kind of leftist political economy, most people in Europe, for instance, or Latin America, or in other emerging markets, assume that the role of central bankers is to curb populist politicians and to act as a kind of brick wall or the famous trash barriers, as it were, to contain the realm of politics within. You don't expect that drama to be enacted in the United States. And yet that's what we saw last year because the, the, the major cause of disruption to the global economy last year was the increasingly volatile course of American policy towards China. That was having major effects, measurable impact on the stability of expectations in the business community, the outlook for investment. The Fed economists, econometricians were running models that demonstrated that the single most you know, destabilizing force in the information flow to the global economy were the tweets of the American president. And uh, for, for a central banker, of course, that then raises a real dilemma. If my, if, if my job is to ensure stability, and the major source of instability is a man who's up for election next year, is it not my job 
to minimise the chances of his re-election. And if it is my job to minimise his chances of re-election, then it's not my job to accommodate the absurdity of his illiberal protectionist trade policy by reducing interest rates every time markets get jumpy. In other words, my job is the job that all leftists have always assumed conservative central bankers perform, which is to allow populist regimes to fail. The problem is, can anyone allow the United States government to fail? Right? Or is it too big to fail? Your point was driven almost, almost too on the nose by one tweet in particular when China and Jay Powell brought up his, who's the, the, the yeah. bigger enemy to America, Xi Jinping or Jay Powell? Uh, but that, the astonishing thing yeah. is that Bill Dudley shot back. So the former president of the New York Fed said right. in the Bloomberg op-ed, in that case, Mr. President, we should stop accommodating the fallout from your policy which is the position that everyone's always assumed that, say, the ECB adopts towards left-wing governments in the Eurozone. So you can do your thing, but you will also then have to deal with the consequences, whereas the Fed is trapped in a position in which it essentially has to accommodate the shocks from because it, from, the, from, the, from, the, from the president's nationalist uh, efforts to disassemble the global economy in the pursuit of this, you know, the policy of decoupling. In a sense, COVID has come to the Fed's rescue because with... Because with, with COVID, they're all on the same page. There is a moment, right. the closer I've looked at March, the, the more I've begun to wonder why it took the Fed as long as it did. And this is COVID time that we're talking about. So I'm talking about between Monday the 9th and Sunday the 15th of March. Right. Why they allowed basically the markets to spiral in that period. You know, if it's legitimate to ask what she was doing in the third week of January, then it's certainly legitimate to ask what Powell was doing with regard to markets in the in that period. Because in that period, Trump was railing against the Fed and the Fed was not acting beyond various types of very technical intervention in the repo market. The big bazooka, <coughs> you know, the big shock and all type policies begin to be rolled out from the 15th. And from that moment on, I would agree, the Fed has acted with a sort of open-handedness on a scale that's really quite dizzying. I mean, I think they're probably quite drunk on the scale of the of the programs they've initiated. And there are indeed big questions to be asked about, you know, not just from a dogmatic conservative position about the moral hazard issues that they may have created. Because they're, you know, they're bailing out all sorts of people, hedge funds, private equity folks, but not not your conventional Wall Street investment bankers, the people who get paid tens of millions of dollars, but the people who walk away with pay packets in the hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars are being cushioned at this moment. So, Adam, yeah. let's get back to the, the question where Jer- Jeremy was asking you about American power and American political authority. Uh, to speak of power is necessarily to speak comparatively. I mean, in the present moment, the obvious point of comparison, of course, is to China. And we've talked about a little bit of that, you know, the, the appearance of, of Chinese competence compared, of course, to the, the, you know, the disaster of the American COVID-19 response. In your estimation, has China's power increased or diminished during the course of the pandemic? Because I, I feel like you could muster arguments for both mm-hmm. cases. I mean, yes, as we've said, it sh- appeared more con- competent, but it's also come out of this a lot more diplomatically isolated than it was before uh, the year started and has drawn certainly a lot of criticism, again, for Hong Kong, for Xinjiang, for the Indian border clash, for its handling of African migrants in China, uh, and, and maybe more than, than the praise that it's drawn. How, how do you calibrate the, how do you weigh these in the balance? I think I agree. I think it's a missed opportunity from their point of view. I think objectively, as it were, the circumstances of the situation do shift the balance and continue to shift the balance China's way. But it could have shifted far more radically than it has. 
Right. I mean, I think it objectively right. shifts simply because their economy is actually showing some signs of growing, uh, because they continue to be, a, you know, the market of last resort for all the commodity producers, because they do continue to hold a key position as creditors to many of the poorest countries in the world, because de facto they have, to a large extent, contained, I appear to have control over the pandemic and to be able to restore something like normality. So all of those are, as it were, you know, the objective circumstances dictate that China's position is stronger than that of the United States. But I agree. I think a combination of things, on the one hand, as it were, you know, a kind of, well, it's difficult to read, and I'm not China specialist enough to really be able to make sense of the motor that drives these moves in Xinjiang, in Hong Kong. It's difficult for me to understand the deeper grand strategic logic, but there are clearly heavy investments, so they motor on with those. Then I think there is real cack-handedness. And the place where I'm particularly sensitive to this is, is Europe, which objectively has had the worst epidemic of everyone. You know, Europe is like mm-hmm. a string of New Yorks. I mean, the America's numbers taken as a nation are nowhere near as bad as most of, you know, the Belgiums, the Spains, the Italy, the Frances, the UKs of this world. But nevertheless, the, the Europeans have somehow managed to salvage a sense of like accomplishment at having stabilized. <laughs> having made some constructive policy steps into EU policy. And this is accompanied by a really dramatic negative term in sentiment towards China. If you think the American public has churned against China, the German Marshall Fund surveys that they've done recently suggest that the hardening of attitudes is much more severe in Europe, notably in France. Um, and I think the face mask diplomacy incident was really was disastrous. And it's difficult for me to really understand how people can take it as seriously as they do, but they do. So, you know, this was this was was severely misjudged, I think, as an element of diplomacy. And and I think that then compounds with a general shift which Beijing doesn't have any control over. You know, a, a general response to the circumstances that Beijing is driving forward and the policy it's driving forward in Hong Kong. This will produce a counter-reaction. There's not much you can do about that. Um, but certainly the yeah the the there's a real, to, to me, it does feel a little bit like displacement. You know, it's easier to think negative thoughts about Beijing than it is to settle down on the sheer and utter disaster of your own public health policy in much of Europe. But that displacement is going on. Adam, you've talked about how COVID-19 has laid bare the major vulnerabilities of the three major centers of uh, production mm-hmm. and business activity, namely the United States, China and the EU. Could you identify for us what those weaknesses are and give us an updated assessment of the likelihood that each of these three centers might be able to effectively address its respective vulnerability? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the story has continuously been reshuffled. Uh, and it's really, this is part, I think, of the drama of this year is that the narrative doesn't settle down. Because if you think about the Chinese side of this story, we started the year with a bunch of Western tomatators talking about a Chernobyl moment. This was the moment where, as it were, the veneer of omnicompetence would crack. You know, and through February 7th, that didn't look like an entirely implausible story. But then, of course, the, there's been an absolutely dramatic pivot. Um, the, the weakness that I identified from an economic point of view is, is the extraordinary debt pile and the deep concerns that many people have about the stability of that. Um, so far, Beijing, People's Bank of China, has managed to, as it were, sail their way through. It is early days, and it's still possible, of course, that you know there could be a chain reaction somewhere. But we haven't, we haven't seen that. Nor did we, in the early phases, see much of a stimulus effort either. So this wasn't two thousand and eight, 
And I think people put two and two together and said Michael Pettis had a rather good column where he said that, you know, he thought this was, as it were, the canary in the coal mine or the dog that didn't bark. You know, the Chinese had not moved to an aggressive high-level stimulus because they were concerned about those financial instabilities. I think, again, we've had to re- we, we would need to revise that story because a series of rather decentralised initiatives, private bank lending, are actually producing a notable stimulus in China this time around. On the, European, the vulnerability for the U.S. though is political polarization. It's political, yeah. That, that's right. just more extreme than ever. Yeah. So on the exactly. American side, we have this, and in Europe, you know, again the tables turned. March looked as though the eurozone was sailing towards a totally predictable crisis. Uh, they haven't resolved the fundamental issues of legacy debts. Uh, they haven't resolved the fundamental issues of slow growth in Italy, but they have managed to turn the novelty of the crisis itself into the excuse opportunity occasion for some novel state building. Mm. And that, I think, is an interesting move, right? When you take the shock and say, well, uh, that allows us to break out of existing deadlock. Whereas I think exactly as you're saying, with regard to the US, what we've seen is that the crisis has intensified, screwed down further on existing tensions. One of which, well, globally, is um, the Trump administration's approach to China uh, which, uh, I, I mean, I myself has de- uh, described as uh, lacking strategy and haphazard. Um, mm. But you've called it uh, a deliberate strategy of uh, stress testing. Um, mm. Could you explain that a little bit? And does that uh, characterization still make sense? I think that was a characterization that fitted the situation of last year, the year before that, better, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the idea that potentially China, you know, actually did have these domestic financial vulnerabilities, that Xi's move to change the essentially the constitution of China had created a groundswell of resistance, that the overly ambitious Chinese foreign policy might in fact be stirring points of resistance within the party and more broadly. And so therefore it was important for America to, as it were, put up a front of resistance and see how exactly position, how how strong their position was. I do think the game has changed since then. Um, I think, I don't, I'm, I'm still, I agree that there is, as it were, incoherence. Um, but then I kind of think most policy is characterised by incoherence. I'm somebody who's deeply marked by having spent a lot of time studying Nazi Germany. And there are two different ways of describing (laughs) that regime. One is that it's profoundly incoherent. And if you look closely at it, that's exactly what it looks like. But then if you stand back from the Third Reich, is that exactly how you would describe its history? Hardly. It's a profoundly dynamic, massively destructive, rather concerted project of massive violence. And And I think... One might say the same thing about the Trump administration. There's a lot of people. <laughs> there's a lot of people trying to pin tails on the donkey of a new policy to respond to the strategic challenge of China. And perhaps not surprisingly, they don't all agree on exactly the terms they're going to do that with. But they are all pretty committed to trying to do that. Broadly speaking, yeah, that, that comes across in in your piece. Whose yeah. century? You know, this idea that the trade war was, well, the trade war was never really about trade, but from the U.S. side, it now looks like this multi-front, full court press that just involves technology, national security, a growing range of rights and values issues from Xinjiang to Hong Kong, things that I think many understandably suspect the Trump administration doesn't give a flying f*** about. But um, to what extent do you believe that the animus toward China here uh, in the U.S. was an historical inevitability, perhaps just hastened by the advent of Trump and his administration. And what to ex- extent do you think 
I mean, this is a deeply sort of historical, philosophical question, but do you think that it assumed its current proportions just chiefly as a result of Trump administration policy? I mean, I think you're you're right. I mean, the extraordinary thing about the situation now is that probably the trade policy axis is the most calm, cool, calm, and collected and most amenable (laughs) to a deal, right? And I'm not talking about Trump's desire just to cut any old deal before the election, but Robert Lighthizer, I think, and the connections that he has built to Beijing are probably the most stable line and 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 because it is now i think the the real driving force is now a national security dimension on the one hand uh, which i would distinguish i've come to feel and this is how i you know things are moving fast so since writing that lrb piece i've begun cooking up i think there's a third element now which is you pointed to which is really the political wing and it's the pompeos the bars of this world o'brien that that trio and what I think is astonishing about their take is it's you know historical in a sense they go back they read the text of the Communist Party conclude that these people are legitimate heirs to the revolutionary tradition to to you know uh, as though this as though you couldn't have read those texts for, for years and come to that conclusion right it's as though this is some sort of sudden revelation but to but to answer your question. I definitely don't think this is reducible to the Trump administration. I think the the mm-hmm. fundamental cooling of policy began with Clinton and um, uh, as uh, when she was Secretary of State, and it began with Obama, and it began with the shock of the Americans. I mean, those accounts of the Obama team and their early visits to Beijing was it oh nine when they made that oh nine yeah, and they felt they felt quite roughly handled. You know, there's that famous incident of Geithner being laughed at by Beijing university students. He think he went earlier. But there's a distinct, I think, sense on the part of Washington that they're waking up to a reality in which China is you know, no longer easily playing a subordinate you know, partner in the relationship. And the fundamental question ever since, and this will remain the fundamental question for Biden as well, is are America's policymakers is the heart of the American power political establishment able to imagine a world which is really fully multipolar? Are they actually able to envision a reality in which they're dealing with another major power? Now, the question how they imagine that other power to be wired and what its motivations are and what tools it's using is another question. But are they even able to make that right. first step and to recognise its historical significance and accept it, like without bending it back onto some assumption that ultimately China will converge, and you know the the simply that reality. Um, if they're not able to, then I think you end up in the position you were suggesting of thinking that this is in a sense foreordained and there's really no escape um, from a position of confrontation. Because if you start from the assumption that something is wrong in the world, if there is an alternative centre of power like that then you are bound to regard the current situation in antagonistic terms because that's evidently right. the situation. That I'm not sure that there's room for that in the American imaginary, right? Well, I do. It's a huge challenge, I think. Um, and I do think it's on the level of, in the history of American foreign relations, this, you know, the hotly debated and argued over both by academics and by contemporaries at the time, you know, the, the rise to globalism. What, 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 we, what we need now is a is a shift in our in America's understanding of what that involves. And I'm, I, I think that is, for me, the, the absolutely basic question. Let's leap back to Beijing, Adam. Uh, to what extent do you believe that in China, the assertiveness uh, we've seen owes to historical forces bigger than individual leaders? And how much to the person of Xi Jinping himself? 
Well, I'm, I, I should really be very clear about the limits of my expertise here. I, I, I'm not really the person to ask that question of what I, what I, what I, you know, because I spend a lot of time thinking about and reading and, and uh, in the end wrote in an earlier book on, on, on the international relations of the aftermath of World War One, And I was fascinated there with the emergence of Chinese nationalism in the early 20th century. Not that that's the ultimate beginning, but this is the moment where kind of modern Chinese nationalism sure. takes. The May 4th movement. Right. Exactly, May 4th and, and subsequent. And I think it's pretty difficult to deny. Obviously, any tradition like that has to be continuously kept alive and reinterpreted and reimagined into the present. But it, it seems it seems fairly straightforward to project a line forward from that moment to the current configuration of you know a transformed national history a, a truly spectacular transformation in China's relative standing and absolute standing how you know to imagine that not connecting to that long complex fraught violent dramatic tragic history of nation building i mean what kind of a polity would not connect i mean it would be it would be an act of sort of you know willful denial not to connect the current moment to that moment and to that extent it seems to me you know the particular modulation it may take the particular version it has taken under she may be characteristic and particular to him but it's pretty difficult for me to understand how how you would not get a convergence between the current story of China's society. If you just take the military side of things, China would have to have a continuously falling and by now minuscule share of government spending on defence, not to emerge as a strategic contender with the United States. If all they do is go on spending the small fraction of government expenditure and GDP they do on defence, because of the growth of the underlying pie, you end up as the major contender. Yeah, you just you can't you know if they even to maintain the military in being, given the surge in you know incomes and salaries in the private sector, you know you, they would have to be sort of constantly counter steering to prevent this from from happening. And why would they? Like it's not it's 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 you don't have to go. But it just would seem to me to be. You know, you don't have to invoke strong traditions within the Communist Party or the centrality of the military to the regime since 89 or Xi's particular interpretation of 89 and the role of military. You still end up in a position which is pretty difficult for the Americans to digest. That's right. Jeremy, I I think Adam gets high marks for a non-specialist in his sensitivity to how history operates in China. That's, that's That's very good. It's very extraordinarily well put. Indeed. Adam, what are the chief challenges that you see the U.S. facing with respect to China in the next administration? I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tempt fate here and, and ask you not about a second Trump term, but specifically, you know, a Biden administration. What would the chief challenges going forward be? Well, I mean, it depends what you think the Biden administration is going to be. And I don't think we right. know that yet. And, and I don't need to tell you because I'm sure you speak to these sorts of people all the time. But there's a wing of the Democratic Party that is hawkish on China. As I've been saying, you know, that, that has a legitimate base uh, on the center right of the, of the Democratic Party. There is, another, there, are, there is another possibility of a kind of left human rights centered critique of China, which could also, you know, occupy a lot of space. My own personal position is a sort of, you know, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in West Germany. Um, uh, I grew up in the period of Ostpolitik, of, of, of transformation through engagement. Um, and um, given the urgency of the global problems that we face, I just don't see any alternative to looking for um, points of cooperation. And what are those crucially there around climate politics? 
I, mean, I think that has to be the priority of the next you know, 25 years, at least, of progressive politics. And China is, China is a complex political economy. It's got a lot going on. This is not some top-down, simple kind of monolith. Um, it has one of the largest, it has the by far, sorry, not one, it has by far and away the largest fossil fuel powered industrial you know, sector in the world. It's a huge ask for China to decarbonize. But it also has huge uh, revolutionary technological potential in the renewable sector. Um, and anything that we on the Western side can do to facilitate that transition, to profit from it, to cooperate in it, is going to be in the interests of our own selves, but our children and our children's children um, going forward. And so that is, for me, like everything axes on that. You can spin other things out from that, you know, one, one belt, one road, um, policy towards uh, low-income countries, to me, that is the that is the central general concern that we have, and that involves then a series of quite complicated. And I'm aware of the political, moral, rights trade-offs that may be involved in making that kind of deal. And I think the politician who is articulating that balance most in a most sophisticated fashion right now mm-hmm. is Angela mm-hmm. Merkel, who is trying mm-hmm. to walk that line, because um, Germany has a existential interest in the industrial policy axis with China. VW, the global number one in car production, has a strategy for transition to EV, which axes on the China market and cooperation with China. These are these are not small issues. This is, as it were, the heartland of what a transformative green economic policy looks like. Ultimately, though, you, you've talked about the, the urgency of disarming economic growth, though. I mean, that's really where the deadliest yeah. arms race is taking place, right? Uh, I yes. mean... Well, this is what I mean by saying so disarming economic growth, one start is to shift the auto industry to EV as quickly as possible. Another start is clearly to transition wholesale to electrification and to transition to clean energy. China is a potential partner. Uh, I mean, it's a vital partner. Um, But of course, uh, the Trump administration has made it much more difficult for there to be any kind of cooperation on any issue and environment, perhaps (laughs) even more so than most. In the last few weeks, we've seen the Trump uh, administration really pull out the stops. He, he has the president has started using the term Chinese virus all the yeah. time. Uh, Barr has talked about the Department of Justice really ramping up its uh, China initiative, which targets all kinds of alleged and real Chinese malfeasances. We've uh, ordered a consulate closed. Uh, Pompeo has uh, become uh, the uh, public enemy number one in the Chinese state press, and uh, mm-hmm. he has himself uh, just stopped short of calling for the Chinese people to rise up uh, and revolt. And that's only to name a few of the things that have gone on in the last, I don't know, (laughs) six days. (laughs) Um, um, What do you see as the purpose of this uh, full court press on China by the Trump administration? Uh, You know, one theory we've talked about uh, on uh, our website is that it may be intended to scorch the earth and make any kind of uh, reset uh, difficult or almost impossible for a possible Biden administration? Or how would you interpret it? I, I think that's not altogether implausible. I mean, I think in a sense, they may be over-egging it in that in the, there's actually bipartisan agreement on many of the issues. Uh, the you know the things that the things that are pl- plenty of Chinese red lines bottom lines as they like to call them will be crossed in an entirely bipartisan fashion by the American Congress right so the stuff that that Pompeo and Barr and so on are laying on top of that 
may be unnecessary, but I agree with you that that may be exactly what they're trying to do. They may be they may be trying to, as it were, to that change the terms of the debate such that there is no way back. That imputes to them a very high degree of strategic commitment and strategic rationality. I'm not averse to doing that in general, um, but I think one has to be clear that that is that is what that interpretation implies. Um, another another more cynical interpretation is that the Trump administration began to get desperate about its re-election chances really at the end of April. Um, and you can see if you follow day by day, because I'm reconstructing that right now for a short book I'm writing about this crisis this year. But if you look day by day, you know, Bloomberg has that Trump tracking wonderful uh, site that you can go to where you can follow literally. You can see ramping up within the Trump administration those scurrilous, you know, talk about the Wuhan uh, virus and so on um, from that moment onwards. So there may also be a cynical sense that this is part of, you know, a, a an election winning strategy, um, part of the same motive that drives the Trump folks towards the cultural war rhetoric of the, of the Rushmore speech. And one of the things I found really astonishing about Pompeo is that he's willing to bridge that, right? So Pompeo will link the Rushmore rhetoric to the hardline on China by saying, broadly speaking, the Chinese Communist Party is into erasing history. American liberals are into erasing history. The New York Times is doing the work of the Chinese state media with the 1619 (laughs) Project. I mean, this is all stuff that Pompeo is saying. It's extraordinary kind of knitting together of the domestic culture war front with the external kind of new old Cold War uh, position. Yeah, it, it's almost as though, you know, hostility toward China is becoming sort of the organizing principle. Uh, y- yeah. A litmus test of, yeah, of credibility. And it's clearly not just right. the administration team, right? There's that list of senators that all signed up to this TikTok, you know, you know, FBI thing. It's Cruz, Rubio. Of course, always. Seem to be like, you know, the three, the three uh, musketeers. <laughs> These two explanations, though, I mean, the sort of scorched earth, uh, the Overton window shift, you know, moving the center line, uh, which, as you say, su- suggests a strategic approach. And the, the, the purely cynical electoral approach. These are consistent, though. These are not contradictory. They, they're completely yeah. compatible, right? No, no, because because they clearly believe their best chance is to get Trump reelected. Like so, and and they may even believe that enacting. I think deep dark, you know, if you, deep down, if you look at the kind of Navarro, we have to take some of this stuff seriously. As difficult it is reasonable for people to imagine that they actually believe that China weaponized the virus and you know sent thousands of businessmen and tourists to the West so as to infect us. They these people, Navarro and Pompeo's play with this idea frequently enough to the point where I think you have to begin to believe that maybe they actually believe this. And so if that's the case, there's a sort of corner of the American imaginary right now, which which has antecedents, and Navarro would be kind of a line all the way through, which generally has a kind of apocalyptic vision of Chinese-American relations, which ultimately culminates in war. You know, this is, as it were, you know, this is a Steve Bannon theme as well, after all, right? The the, the tensions in the current moment can only really be resolved by another climactic struggle of some kind. And and as unpalatable as that is, and as, as thoroughly irrational as it sounds, I think we have to take seriously that there is a group of folks in the American apparatus that that believe, I mean, in the in the American politics that believe this, and of course they cinch then 
with people in the security policy establishment whose job it is to prepare for that right. contingency. I mean, I when I was professor at Yale, I ran a, you know, inherited from Paul Kennedy, this Institute for Strategic Studies outfit, security studies outfit. We hosted American military people whose job it was to prepare for right. war with China. Like, so so when you put those two elements together, I mean, every everyone's military prepares for wars with all possible components. I'm sure there are plenty of people in China doing the same from their side. But but when you put those two elements together, you all, all, all of a sudden have a combination that's quite, you know, really quite intense. Um, Scary, perhaps, is the word I'd use. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, but the modernity is full of that. You know, there are people all over the world thinking very dark thoughts, and that's part of their job. But the the the... the the, the extent to which this is now a, not just a test of loyalty, as you were saying, but actually a kind of a rather vivid imagining of the future of the next 20 to 30 years, that's game changing if that really gets right. into the system as a powerful idea. Because then, of course, all your calculus is different. I mean, then decoupling just seems like a rational thing to do, right? Because you're going to bomb them anyway. So why have your factories yeah, there? Yeah, exactly. Why, mm. why would you... Why, yeah, why would you, why would you ever engage in that kind of right. calculus? Adam, in the section uh, of your recent piece that I quoted in our newsletter, you suggest, if I may summarize, that China, for China at least, um, in a sense, the first Cold War never really ended, and that the U United States needs to take seriously China's mission and its ideology. Um, and you say this is more than mere nationalism. Can you explain what do you think China's mission is? And do you really think it has the appetite and the ambition to try and supplant the United States? And I, you know, you don't need to put in the uh, disclaimer that you're not a China specialist. Uh, you're doing just fine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's, for me, it's a principle of interpretation. I'm going to call it a method, right? That, no, because I, as I mentioned earlier on, I, I, I started out thinking hard about Nazi Germany. And... You can think about Nazi Germany as essentially something other than it professes to be. Um, you can think about it in various simplistic ways as motivated by realpolitik, really, or a continuity of German history. Or you can attempt to actually think yourself into the mode with which Hitler and his cohorts understood the world. And that seemed to me as a historian a more worthwhile exercise. So I'm not drawing any simplistic analogies between that and modern day China. But what I am saying is that when I encounter a regime and a subject which equips itself and speaks so fluently within an ideology and continuously rolls out ahead of itself, as it were, the, it foams the runway of its own movement with a series of various types of explanations, which if you know anything about Marxism are not entirely absurd, right? It actually creates a kind of logic. Then my impulse is to take that seriously as a way of thinking about why people do the things they do. So this is also the method, say, that Stephen Kotkin, the great biographer, has applied to Stalin. He's not, he's not just a biographer, but he's written an enormous biography of Stalin. This is what he says. When you try and understand Stalin, you have to understand that Stalin lived through ideology. Now, genuine, genuine Western Marxists may say it's not really Marxism, and other people might say, well, he was just a power-hungry maniac. But in fact, if you want to understand the dude, he's some sort of continuously evolving, persistently degenerate Marxist who's also power-hungry, right? And you kind of have to understand the relationship between those elements. And so that, I think, is what we have to 
to reckon with when we're dealing with the Communist Party of China. Like it's it's a, it's an organisation that thinks in terms of a certain logic. Now it is also by now, of course, presiding over a gigantic social experiment with huge investments, thoroughly saturated with the churning transformation of Chinese society. Its composition of the party is continuously shifting. Um, and they are constantly trying to update that project. But I think when they say, you know, we've just, we're about to finish the first glorious hundred years of this project and we're about to embark on the next century. And they continuously evoke this idea that we're living through a moment, you know, what is the phrase like transformations and crises like we haven't seen in a century. This, this phrase that apparently is crucial to the underpinnings of Xi's understanding of what he's about. We should take all of that seriously as best we can and try and, to the same extent that, you know, we would call ourselves liberal internationalists or, you know, American realists. Our ideology also exists in an oblique relationship with the day-to-day realities of our practice, but we should credit theirs with that kind of coherence. Adam, when when all this is over, I hope to get up to New York and I'll take you to coffee and and persuade you, hopefully, that uh, it it isn't as undiluted with good old-fashioned pragmatism that, in many senses, she and and the rest see themselves as custodians of a dead religion. Ah, But anyway... But but no, but, but I mean, but being a custodian of a dead religion still means you have a job. You do, you do. I mean, but still, still means you've got to you've got to do things. Part of that job is is just sort of you know, uh, it's cynical. I, I, I don't know, Kaiser. I, anyway. I I might have to take you for a cup of coffee in North Carolina on the on this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But but, but well, what well, I, this is an ongoing argument between the two of us, and we don't need to rehash it here. But, but. yeah. And, and, and I mean, like, I, I, for me, it's an openness of method, right? What I'm not going to do, uh, what is what I increasingly find shocking is you read Western reports on China, the only premise of which, well, there are two options, like how long will it be before they reform so they become like us? And if failing that, how long will it be before they suffer the terminal crisis that everyone must suffer if they do not abide right. by these historic laws? And, and that's really what I took away from that passage of your piece. And and that's like, it's just a totally reductive way of understanding that's understanding right. our current that's situation. Right. Like, um, so that's that's kind of what I'm, that's what I'm trying to, to, to push against. Let me ask you just uh, just to, to finish up here before we move on to recommendations. You've written memorably, I thought about, uh, I mean, let me quote you here, the, the container and the microchip are far more important motors of globalization than all the GATT rounds and WTO talks put together. Uh, even with the, the collapse of formal trading systems, will these motors of globalization continue to provide enough ballast or even enough sort of juice to de facto keep globalization alive, even in a post-COVID decoupled world. And, and mm. I mean, I know that there are a lot of moving parts here, and it's hard to get a clear picture of where this is going to take us, but I think you're one of the few people I'd feel confident in, in asking this to. You know, we've got these disruptions in supply chains. We've got, you know, changes in, in global capital flows. Is this, to what extent is this all going to reorder geopolitics? Mm. So will globalization endure and in its changed form, what is it going to do to our geopolitics? I mean, it's a huge question, but please take a step. Yeah. So the point about technology, microchips, containers and so on is, is a, again, it's a sort of methodological statement. And it, but it's borne out by what we know of the last 200 years of modern history, which is that we get very excited about the 19th century as an era of free trade. 
all of the evidence suggests, and some of this is quite hardcore econometrics, that the real driver of global integration is simply the, the fall in shipping costs in the 19th century due to highly efficient sailing vessels and then steam vessels. Right? That's the driver. Everything else is really small beer by comparison, because once the cost advantages get sufficient, then stuff flows. The same is true of really the period since the 1960s, right? So the demise of the WTO as a driving force of you know, integration may have really rather a marginal impact on the development of various types of trade and investment relationship because it depends on technologies. The, I think it's reasonable to say that the, if, if you're playing a technological game like this, there are two elements. One is, as it were, the one-off step change gain that you get from the initial innovation and then whatever cumulative further efficiencies you get from extending that out across the entire system or improvements in the technology itself. But those are going to be incremental by comparison with the first big break. And I think if you're trying to predict the course of future trade integration, the question is, are the new technologies on the horizon that would have the same sort of impact that the chip and the container did in the period since the 60s? And you might very well be sceptical about that. And you might say to yourself, well, you know what? There, was the, there were those two big breaks of containerization and then of, of supply chains, of value chains. And then really for the immediate future, we don't see another break like that. We also don't see another huge labor stock like the Chinese one and the East Asian one generally, that could be incorporated into the world economy in quite the same way. I think the one big variable that would change that is Africa. If there was a way of dynamizing right, sub-Saharan right. Africa, they are really the big part of the world which has not been effectively touched by global integration since the highly violent integration of the African economy into the world economy in the 19th century, but really since the interwar period. It's, it's been characterized by its exclusion, with the exception of certain limited raw material flows. And I think one of the innovative elements of Chinese thinking is that they don't appear to have a problem with imagining a much deeper integration of the sub-Saharan African countries and their populations into the growth story of the future. Were that to happen, it would be game-changing with regard to the future of globalization. Um, and it would be in qualitative and potentially in quantitative terms far more significant than whatever loosening, uncoupling we might have between California and the Pearl River Delta, which of course was a huge story from the 90s through to the present. That might be over. But if China were able to open up, I spent a very happy February in Tanzania, and the footprint of China is all over that country, by no means uncontested, right. hugely political... No, very much up for grabs, but it's a long history that goes back to Chinese sponsorship of Tanzanian independence in the 1960s. So this isn't just something, no, some Johnny-come-lately relationship. It has a long history. And sub-Saharan Africa is the great driver. It's the next great demographic, you know, surge. So, you know, those will be the sort of imponderables. Yes, you know, tech has, has a certain set of late 20th century technologies run its course? Quite possibly. Could we see... A pulling apart of that axis, you know, designed in California, manufactured in China, quite possibly. Would that necessarily imply a collapse? No, but it could be a leveling out. If China succeeds in what appears to be one of the ambitions of its global, its distinctive globalization vision, which is really to deeply integrate sub-Saharan Africa, that would be, that would totally change the story. And it would mean, also in narrative terms, right? Because when Europe did that to sub-Saharan Africa, it was a catastrophic story starting with slavery and massive exploitation. This isn't to say the relations with China are on equal terms or that there isn't an exploitative dimension. But it would be it would be a it would be a really dramatic step. Adam, just at the very end here, I want to take it back uh and, and talk a little bit about 
some of your ideas regarding the urgency of, of environmental cooperation. And, you know, you, you talk pretty candidly about a Green New Deal, something that uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is associated with, but I think which is gaining quite a bit of currency. I think there's a lot of people who are, are recognizing this is an opportunity to really profoundly remake the American economy in a way that is more sustainable and it actually will drive innovation. Uh, you, you're a pretty ardent proponent of this idea. Can you talk about that and where China fits in? Well, I do. I, I think the Green New Deal is, is promising because it, it, it isn't just a, an American energy policy agenda. I, I see it as, as an effort to really heal the wounds of the first fairly traumatic decades of globalization and their impact on the American working class, which it's a simplistic diagnosis, but it's nevertheless one that has real political purchase, is one of the driving forces behind the, the Trump phenomenon. And what I see the Green New Deal as being is is a is a domestic policy agenda. One could in fact criticize it for its sort of nationalism. It's, it's, it's a national industrial policy inspired by the good old days of FDR. But but in the process of doing that, I think the aim of the game is, as it were, to make America to provide a domestic political and social platform for a more cooperative, globally cooperative United States. It, as it were, those good jobs are there, then America needs to be less anxious about its trading relations with the rest of the world, for instance. And crucially, what it would do is to transform America's role in global climate negotiations, which in which it is it's no longer, it's not the essential anchor that it once was. After all, America's CO2 emissions together with Europe's are less than those of China, if you calculate on a production side rather than consumption basis. So America is only a piece of the puzzle, but it's an important piece of the puzzle. And it would put the US in a position to collaborate with the very multifaceted push that we see towards decarbonisation in China. And one key element of this, and the Europeans are way ahead in their thinking about this, is the question of how, in fact, we address trade policy issues in light of the programme of decarbonisation. China is introducing, for want of, you know, for better or worse, its own carbon pricing system, modelled on and developed out of the system the Europeans are laboriously assembled. That's, right. as it were, the climate policy agenda that was abandoned essentially by the Obama administration in 2009 because they simply couldn't get the congressional majority for it. The Green New Deal, which is an investment-led project in the United States, emerges out of the failure of that price-based, tax-based model of environmental policy in the US. But there is the possibility, if you like, by way of this this detour to find our way back to something like a coherent decarbonizing, carbon pricing agenda across the three major centers of the world economy. Those are the stakes, and they're, they're, they're very high um, in terms of the trajectory that we're on, because as you know, the timeline is short. And the American electoral cycle gives us, you know, a two-term democratic presidency is like the best we can probably hope for now in, in really energizing that drive and breaking the obstacle such that even in red states, as it were, you get a coalition of businesses and consumers who are interested in cheap green electricity, which is the future. And it's there if we can get through the logjam of vested interests that obstructs rational energy policymaking in the US. Very big if. Adam Tews, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I look forward to having you back on the show in the future. We've got lots to talk about with you. Uh, let's move on, though, first to recommendations. Let me tell you before we do that how you can help us keep the show going. Hey, cynical listeners, 
I'm really grateful to all of you who've stepped up and donated or subscribed during our drive. As you know, things are in a perilous state right now with U.S.-China relations, and it feels like the middle ground is disappearing really fast. I, I still believe that a deeper understanding of China is urgently needed, so help us get the word out about the podcast and help us keep going, because these things do cost money. If you think this program adds some valuable perspectives and helps to restore a little sanity, if you want us to keep fighting the good fight, then show your support by going to podcast.supchina.com. That's podcast.supchina.com. And help us out however you can. From our podcast team and all of SupChina, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your contribution. Okay, now on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? So today I have something, uh, I don't know if nepotistic is the right word, but uh, as some of our listeners uh, <laughs> may know, uh, my wife, uh, Wu Fei, is a uh, classically trained composer and a performer on the Guzheng, the Chinese zither, and some other instruments. And obviously after lockdown started, uh, uh, every single performance she had uh, booked <laughs> from now until you know, who knows, has been cancelled. Um, so she started a, a daily email where she sends out every day an email containing a, a song, and you can also subscribe to it as a podcast. Um, and uh, they're all original compositions or, or improvised on the day, and they range from uh, just crazy stuff she made up to um, things based on traditional Chinese music and uh, more recently she did uh, a Bach minuet uh, by voice which she mixed yeah. uh, you know several uh, Guzheng and voice several tracks together um, and uh, it goes out every day of the week and you can subscribe to the free version which, which gives you Monday and Friday or you can pay a bit of money and get uh, every day of the week and you can find it at Wufei Music W-U-F-E-I Music dot substack dot com substack is the email newsletter company that many people know and uh yeah that's my recommendation apologies to everyone for the nepotism <laughs> no problem i mean I, it's it's excellent i subscribe i get the daily and it's great i love it adam what do you have well i i sympathize with with your situation uh, uh this this crisis has been bad for a range of people that I don't think ever imagined would find themselves in trouble. My wife's in the travel business and we've been struggling to find ways of, uh, of her business staying relevant. Um, it's, a, it's a real uphill uh. battle, so kudos to her for having the imagination to come up with such a great idea. Mine is, not a, mine is really not a China-related suggestion, but it, it goes back to the question really of how we think about historical drama and... Uh, um, which I do think is the challenge of our current moment, because we say, you know, easily 2020 is a historic year. Um, but that makes it that makes it traumatic. That makes it difficult to live through. It's because it is touching so many of us so directly. And trying to stay alive to that and find ways of expressing that, verbalizing that, conveying the drama, I think is a huge challenge. Your podcast does a really good job. Um, a, a former graduate student, now a friend and colleague of mine, recommended. A book which I, I mean, I'm not generally a huge reader of novels, but I decided I set this aside. And it's about Latin America, or rather Central America. Mario Mario Vargas Llosa's uh, The Feast of the Goat, which if you don't know, it's about the Dominican Republic and the Trujillo regime and the moment of its collapse and the extraordinary traumas that it left. And I really can't say that I've read uh, a book recently which which taught 
precisely about the way in which people come to terms with the sorts of historic shock that we're living through. So if you're looking for really an emotionally and philosophically deep way of getting to grips with the situation, um, which so many of us I know are, I would really recommend this. Mario Vargas Llosa's uh, The Feast of the Goat, hot top tip. Excellent. No, that's a great recommendation. I'm, I'm going to uh, read that for sure. I'm actually in the market for a good novel right now. Beautifully translated as well. Uh, you know, we actually have a, a podcast about China in the Caribbean that will be probably coming out uh, the week after this one. So please check that out as well uh, with an, uh, a charming uh, foreign service officer who's stationed actually uh, in Barbuda. Um, I, w- I was on Twitter a couple of weeks back sort of for my recommendations. I-, I happened to see a retweet of a thread by a gentleman named Tom Thomas Levinson, uh, who, which caught my eye because of the surname and because he had mentioned, you know, China in that retweet. He talked about the, you know, who lost China debate and a reference to my father, uh, his father. That, that father, of course, was the great late, <clears throat> that father, of course, was the late great Joseph Levinson, who, what now, 30 years now after I first read him is still definitely sort of my pole star when it comes to modern Chinese intellectual history. Uh, it turns out Thomas Levinson, uh, who was also trained in Chinese history, is a professor of science writing at MIT. He's written several books. I bought one right away just on, on the you know, unscientific hunch that uh, some of Levinson Pear's literary gifts had been passed along to Levinson Field. I was not disappointed at all. Uh, I, I'm just finishing this that book that I got, which is called The Hunt for Vulcan. I highly recommend that. It's about how basically Newtonian physics gave way to Einsteinian physics. The, the Newtonian, you know, mechanistic universe gave way to, you know, the, the, the general theory of relativity. Uh, it's written though in incredibly enjoyable prose. I mean, it's a story. It's, it, he tells it, you know, from a very human centric perspective. Uh, I'm going to devour, I think, all the rest of his books now because it's just great writing. Uh, he has a new one coming out very soon, which I think, Adam, you'll be really interested in. It's called Money for Nothing. It's about the creation of the modern financial system, mm-hmm. and it's already getting very, very good reviews. Uh, and yeah, he's he's great. He's somebody you should also follow on Twitter if you get a chance. He's uh, really uh, a great kind of... Uh, he's got a great, great, great Twitter feed. I highly recommend. So, Thomas Levinson, son of the great Joseph Levinson. Adam, once again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Really enjoyed this, and I, I hope we do it again soon. Yes, it Jeremy, as usual. Yeah, thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Adam. That was a really, really interesting conversation. Indeed, indeed. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.